you say old bullies, buddy. And then uh, you don't clarify the age group because I think you essentially handed over to an old buddy who now has the mic. <coughs> I could just tell you some stories about James quickly. No, but we won't. <coughs> All right, we won't, we won't, we won't do that. Um, just to say, yeah, welcome. If I haven't met you, my name is Roland, and would love to get to meet you, one of the pastors here at Connect. Um, if you are here for the first time, you're joining us at an exciting time uh, because we just we've just started our series in the Book of Romans, which we have fantastically called Romans. Um, we started that last week. It was a bit of an intro, and we only really got through the first five verses in the Book of Romans. And we looked at a couple of things uh, last week, which I'm just going to briefly go through. So catches you up and brings you up to speed with regards to where we're at, and then we're, we're moving on to the next part of Romans, and essentially this, this series is going to be about 16 weeks long, so it's a 17-week long series. We started last week, and we've got quite a few more to go. I think we go all the way through to September, so uh, you're here just in the beginning. You haven't missed out on much, but just quickly, a recap of last week. We had a look at the fact that Paul is writing to the Christian church in Rome. He's never been there, so he writes this letter to introduce himself. And in his introduction, he speaks a little bit about his heart, about who he is. And he really introduces in the first 18 verses the whole theme of the book of Romans. But the whole theme can also be condensed into the first seven verses. And what he unpacks there is this idea of the gospel. And he sets the whole book of Romans up as as an unpacking of the gospel by mentioning in the first seven verses what the letter is all about. And so a couple of things that we touched on last week was this, that Paul, in his understanding of the gospel, saw that there were four key aspects to what the true gospel really is. And for him, it started with the fact that the gospel has its source in God. That the idea of the gospel, the story of the gospel comes straight from the throne room of God. It's not a man's idea. It's not a church's idea. It's not some board of elders' idea. It's not some seminary's idea. The gospel is God's idea, and it finds its source in him. He then goes and he says the gospel is rooted in the Old Testament. In other words, this gospel is not just a New Testament gospel. It's an Old Testament gospel and a New Testament gospel. The whole gospel can be seen from Genesis through to Revelation. And despite what some theologians and pastors will tell you to do, we don't unhook the Old Testament from our faith for that reason. Because to understand what Jesus has done and why he did it is to understand the promise that is up to that as well. All right? Then Paul says, not only is the gospel an old gospel, but it also is centered on Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is at the center of the gospel. And he spoke about uh, the actual thrust of the gospel being about the glory of of Jesus. So Paul mentions that in the first couple of verses. And the last thing we touched on was the fact that the gospel message calls for total surrender to King Jesus. The idea that you can be unsubmitted and unsurrendered and disobedient to King Jesus yet still claim to be a Christian is a little bit absurd because a call to follow Jesus is a call to acknowledge and to accept him as Lord and Savior. And so that's what we unpacked a little bit last week. So this evening we're going to look at also, in the first uh, 18 verses, we're going to be moving towards the end. We're going to look, though, not necessarily at what Paul considers to be part of the gospel and aspects of the true gospel. That's what we did last week. This week, we're going to essentially take a look into and dive deep into the heart of Paul and have a look at his attitude toward the gospel and essentially what our attitudes toward the gospel need to be. In a very real sense, 
the verses that we're going to read unpack for us the heart that every Christian should have because of what Jesus has done in our lives. All right, so we're going we're gonna to unpack that under, under the three headings which will make themselves quite obvious now as we read through um, the scripture because they're going to be put under the three great I am statements that Paul makes. Like it's, he, he's not using the I am statement as in like I am as in that's God's name. He speaks about three I am's that he is uh, towards the gospel and that becomes clear as we read and that's how we're going to unpack it tonight. So let's read together. It's Romans chapter one. We're going to start in verse eight and read to 10 and then skip to 14 and end off in verse 17. Here's what Paul says. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith has been reported all over the world. <clears throat> God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. <clears throat> Here's the first I am. He says, I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager, Paul says, to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. And then the third I am, he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. <clears throat> when I read that verse, I was deeply impacted by the richness in it. And we could spend, like I said last week, literally years going through the book of Romans and speak on many different things in that passage. But one of the things that I was struck by as I read about Paul's three, or I read Paul's three great I am statements was, one, that one day when I stand before Jesus, when we stand before Jesus, we're all gonna have to give an account for what we did with the gospel. Every single one of us. God's not gonna ask you what your church did with the gospel. God's not gonna ask you what your pastor did with the gospel. God's not gonna ask you what your family did with the gospel. He's gonna ask you what you did with the gospel. And each of us is gonna have to give an answer and an account for how we invested the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not enough to say that I came to church, that I went to Bible study, that I took notes. It's not enough to say that I considered myself a Christian. God's going to ask you, what did you do with the gospel? It's not enough to just articulate it. Instead, we need to be living the gospel out. We need to be preaching the gospel, and we need to be investing the gospel in people's lives. The story of Jesus must be told, and the only way that it's going to be told is by speaking it out. Sure, it was Howard who preached a message not so long ago where he said, you know, it's not just good enough to say, I will preach the gospel and use words if I have to. In a very real sense, you must be living it out so that people can see it by the way that you live your life, but words have to accompany it. We have to be investing the gospel and preaching the gospel. And so Paul starts off, he says, I am obligated. I realize that I have this huge responsibility and his first I am in speaking about the gospel, the first glimpse into his heart and, and, and the first like understanding of his attitude that we get is when we see this statement where he says, I am obligated. Another word to be used here is I am a debtor. I am a debtor to these people. He says, I'm obligated both to Greeks and to non-Greeks, both to the wise 
and to the foolish. Well, notice I want you to understand that he, he, he starts with I am obligated. It's not I will be or I once was. This is his current state of being in mind. He is I, I am in, in the present state. I am obligated. Every moment of every day, this is true for Paul. Like I said, we can insert the word debtor. In other words, Paul is saying, I'm a debtor, both to the Greeks and the non-Greeks, both to the wise and to the foolish. For some of us, it might seem a little bit weird, and it should strike you as a little bit weird to think about Paul as a debtor for the sake of the gospel and to have that attitude towards the gospel. One of the reasons is because Paul is a big proponent of the fact that gospel, that, that salvation is by grace alone, that the gospel message is a free, freeing message because it comes to us from God by grace. There's nothing that we have to do in order to get this. And so for Paul to speak about himself as being a debtor sort of bit, should be a little bit jarring and, and disconnecting for us. I mean, Paul was the one who said in Romans 3, being justified as a gift by his grace. Then in Ephesians 2 verse 8, he says, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. So it's a little bit weird to think about this concept. The, the second reason why it's a bit weird for Paul to be speaking about himself as a debtor or being obligated to preach the gospel is because he's never been to Rome. He's never got anything from the Romans or received anything from them. He's never done anything there. And so there's nothing really for him to be paying back to them. And so when you read this, it should be a little bit weird until you begin to understand why Paul says it. It should be a little bit jarring. And, and it should be jarring until you understand how you can be in debt. There's, there's two different ways that you can be in debt, right? The one way is if I come to Brad and I say, Brad, listen, I need a truckload of money. Won't you please give me some? And Brad goes, yeah, sure, I'll give you some money. I'm going to deposit it into a bank account and then use it for what you're going to use it for and then just make sure you pay me back, right? We, hopefully, you don't understand that debt too much, but we... We understand that concept. Brad gives me money, and now I am a debtor to him. I'm in debt to him, and so I'm obligated to pay that money back. The other way that I can be in debt is if Brad gives me a whole bunch of money, and he says, Roland, here, I want you to take this money, and I want you to use it for this reason, for this purpose, and I'm going to put double the amount that you need in. I want you to use half of it, and then I want to take the other portion that's left, and I want you to give it to somebody else. And so now I'm in debt to another person. He says, look, I'm going to give you this money, and I want you to go give it to James. Right? I am a debtor to James because Brad has entrusted me with money that is not mine, but it is in my account, and now I'm responsible for taking that money to James. In that way, as it relates to Paul, he understood that he was a debtor to everyone that he came across. He was a debtor to those in Rome, to the Greeks, to the non-Greeks, to the wise, to the, to the foolish. He was indebted to them because of what he had received from Jesus. What Jesus had deposited into his account, he realized couldn't just sit there for him. He couldn't just be a hoarder of the gospel. He was obligated to share it. He knew that the command in Matthew chapter 28, where Jesus says, go and make disciples, didn't mean it was just for those that were selected and elite. He knew that going to fulfill the Great Commission and be obedient to Jesus meant preaching the gospel to people. He was obligated. He must tell people about Jesus. He puts in a really 
powerful way and in a different way in, one, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says this, I must go for Christ's love compels me. And the same is true, or at least should be true for God's people when we consider the gospel. And so this is what Paul means when he says, I'm obligated and I'm a debtor. He's going, I just realized how much I've got from Jesus. And he has said to me, go and now tell people about me. I, am, I can't not do this. And so one of Paul's attitudes towards the gospel is I must go. I think there are a lot of people today, I've, I've, have, I've had conversation with people around this topic and around being obligated to Jesus in certain ways to do certain things. And some of the response that I've got has actually been quite frightening and shocking where people will sit down and they will argue for the fact that there is no such thing as obligation within the Christian faith. Everything is by grace. And as soon as you add some sort of obligation to your walk with Jesus, you're making it about legalism. And there's this idea that people can live the way that they want to live and do what they want to do without submission to the lordship of Jesus. They say things like, you're just being legalistic. I'm free to live how I want to live. There's no obligation. I don't have to go and tell people about Jesus. This is a free grace gift thing. Paul's going, man, I, I got the gospel and I got it really good and I can't help but feel obligated because I know my Lord has commanded me to do this thing, to share the gospel. There's a really powerful analogy which I don't think many people know about, but it's in the book of Ezekiel and Ezekiel uses the analogy of a watchman on a wall. These cities, these fortified cities surrounded by a wall or enclosed by a wall and to be watchmen on the towers of the wall and their responsibility was to watch out for the enemy coming and when the enemy came their job was to blow a trumpet and to warn the people in the city that the enemy was coming and ezekiel says if the watchman does this and the people are warned and they do nothing about it the blood of the cities on their own hands the blood of the people's on their own hands but if the watchman sees the enemy coming and he does nothing to warn the people then the blood of the people will be on the watchman's hands and church, it might be a frightening thing for you, but when you received Jesus, you became obligated to share the gospel with people. You became a watchman on the wall, and you became the voice of a prophet, in a sense, for people in this world who so desperately need to hear about Jesus. Not the pastor, not the church elders, not some elite Christian group. You became responsible because you received the free gift of grace that comes by faith through Jesus Christ, but God said, go now and make sure other people hear about it. You became obligated. When we speak about obligation, we're not talking about being wild-eyed and like stupidly jealous and standing on the street corner shouting, repent, hellfire and brimstone and intimidating people into the, into the kingdom or into repenting. We're not talking about burning bridges. We're talking about taking the time to build bridges with people to get to know them, to build relationship, to befriend them. We take, we're talking about taking every opportunity you can with the person you sit next to on a plane, somebody at work, somebody at school, doesn't matter where it is, taking that opportunity to build a bridge of relationship and then to when the opportunity presents itself, take the gospel across and present it to them. Paul says, I'm compelled to do this. And I think as God's people, we need to, we need to read that and go, wow, I want to be compelled. But for Paul, it wasn't just enough to be compelled. His next 
great I am statement is, is, is super important because he says this, not only am I compelled, he says I'm compelled, but that's why I am so eager to do this. He says, I am eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. I don't know about you, but there have been many times, and there are still many times where I'm compelled to do something I just do not want to do. And the list is endless. One of those things I will share with you is changing babies' nappies. Because I played a role in making our children, I felt obligated to help my wife change their nappies. Right? And to bath them and to put them to bed when they were screaming. It's, yeah, it was obligated. Right? I had to do it. But you could have gone to the bank with the bet that I didn't want to do it. Right? And there was never a time where I was changing a nappy and I was like, oh, this is so good. This is great. Right? It really sucked. There were times where I didn't want to buy nappies. If you know what I, like they're expensive. Okay, so like the best gift, just by the way, the best gift you can buy for any new parent is nappies. Like don't doubt, just buy tons of nappies, right? But there were times I went to the shop and I was obligated to buy them because it would have been really messy otherwise. But I didn't want to do it. When it comes to our faith, I think sometimes Christians can respond like that. Jesus, I really sense this heavy burden. I'm, I'm really obligated to do this thing. Man, I don't want to do this. For Paul, it was the other way around. He was so obligated, but because he was obligated, he was eager. I was listening to somebody recount one of the most hurtful times of their lives. It was when they overheard two, two of their friends talking about whether they would come to this person's birthday party. This person had invited them to a birthday party and these two friends were sitting talking, and the one friend was like, oh, I don't really want to go. Right? There's something else happening. And the other friend was like, yeah, yeah, but yeah, we really can't not go to this birthday party. And the one friend was like, well, let's phone and see who else is coming, who else is invited. If so-and-so goes, then I will go. If we both decide to go, okay, then we will go. And the person that was overhearing it, their testimony was that they're really hurt, and that was one of the things that they really had to work through. We, I'm sure we all know what that feels like when we think somebody's in it with their whole heart, but actually at the end of the day, they're just doing it because they feel like they have to do it. I think sometimes we don't understand before the Lord what it's like to see his children doing what they're supposed to be doing, but really dragging their feet like you're wading through molasses to do this stuff. You know, like you'd rather be at the dentist without anesthetic. No? For some of us, sharing the gospel can be like I said. I'm not saying it's not difficult. I'm not saying we don't get nervous. I'm not saying that we don't have to push through things and it's not scary. I'm not saying that we don't need God's power. That's exactly what I am saying. We do need God's power. But there's a place where we can feel obligated and super excited to receive what God has for us to go and do what he's called us to do. There are some people, and hopefully it's the vast majority of us, who are compelled, we are eager, and we are willing to go and share the gospel with people and to preach the good news. Paul was compelled, but he was also eager. The word eager is like, the way that you can understand it, the actual root word has, has this idea, or carries this idea of a horse chomping at the bit to go, frothing at the mouth, and it's got a bit between its mouth, and the gates are about to open, and it just wants to be let loose. 
That's how Paul felt about the gospel. He's like, I'm not just compelled to do this thing. Just open the gates. I want to get out there. I'm eager. In other words, for Paul, there was no reluctance, no loathing. There was no, you know, hating of his duty. There was no regret. Paul was eager. He was so eager. He was eager because he had encountered the risen king. I don't know about you, but when something really good happens to you, you want to let people know about it. Right? You know, do you know how many SMSs and WhatsApps I got when one, not one time, um, what's the other thing? Slice Affair. When they were doing their five rand tickets. Anybody get any of those? I'm so jealous. Right? But they were doing this five rand ticket thing where they had this waiting room and it, I missed out last year and I missed out this year. Brad will tell you because I lamented a long time. But they're giving away five rand tickets. Right? And everybody tells everybody about it. If you weren't told, I'm really sorry. Right, you probably weren't on my mailing list. Or when Debonair is the one year, I had, a, I had a Facebook reminder five years ago, Chris Besson, thank you, Chris, told me about Debonair's free pizza. Right? And you just had to do this thing and you got a free pizza delivered to a door. I think we ate pizza for ages there at the church. But when something exciting happens, you get excited about it. And Paul was excited about the risen King Jesus because he had experienced it and he wanted people not to miss out on this good thing. He believed it was a good thing. That's what helped him to be eager. For Paul, the eagerness to preach the gospel was essentially an outworking of something supernatural that had happened in his life. It was a natural, supernatural overflow. He'd been reborn again. He'd received the spirit of the living God. His life had been turned upside down. Because of that, the spiritual principle that Jesus speaks about in Matthew chapter 6 was at work within him. Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter 6, he says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then later on, he says this, he says, it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. So for Paul, he had encountered the risen king. His heart had been transformed. Jesus had become his treasure. Jesus had become his pearl of great price. Jesus had become his everything. And because his heart was so full of Jesus, he couldn't help but speak it out. Not only was he compelled, but he was just excited for this thing to come out. And I've been so convicted by the stuff that's in my heart and by what I say and how I share it, there's certain things that you can speak to me about and I'll sit you down and you'll be stuck for ages talking to me about it. None of them have anything to do with Jesus. What am I so excited about, Brad? Planes. <laughs> and people know that. If you know me, you'll know I'm passionate about aviation and flying and flight simming and things to do with flying. And what, James? Oh, okay. I mean, I'm more excited, I mean, okay, but let me say this, Paul was more excited about the gospel than Liverpool fans were last night about the <laughs> soccer game, all right? And you'll know where the Liverpool fans are because they wear stuff around their necks. Yeah. When you're in love, and you'll know this if you've been there, when you're in love, you can't keep yourself from sharing the joy of that love with other people. When you're truly passionate about something, you can't help but speak about it. I think the question we've got to ask ourselves in reading Paul's letter to the Romans in the beginning, and when we look at his attitude, we've got to ask ourselves this question, is Jesus really your treasure? Or do we need to prioritize that again or reprioritize it? Do we need to repent of what we've made Jesus? Do we need to hear those words from him again where he's speaking to um, the church in Revelation? He's saying to them, 
these things you've done well and you do them so well, but this thing I hold against you, you've forgotten your first love. Does Jesus need to come and say that to us? And it's okay if he does, because then that means we're still able to hear and receive, and he still wants us, and there's still space and time to repent, but then repentance needs to happen. And then we go, God, I, I'm, I want to be, I'm obligated, but I want to be passionate about my obligation. And, and I need that to be a work of the Spirit in my life. Sometimes we so allow the love of other things to consume our minds that Jesus just becomes an afterthought, and then the obligation makes us feel guilty. We, we feel so guilty and burdened, and then we preach out of, out of guilt, and not in the power of the Spirit with the love of the Lord. What's very interesting also about what Paul says here is that he's eager to preach the gospel in Rome. And that's amazing because Rome was the center of uh, the known world at that time. And because of that, it was probably the toughest place on earth to preach the gospel. It was the capital of the great Roman Empire. And so you had men like the Caesars on thrones in Rome who believed that they were living gods or would soon become gods, and the people believed that as well. So the government there was no government at all. It was just one man, really, who dominated. The pride and the arrogance that dripped off of almost everyone that lived there was unbelievable, simply by virtue of the fact that they were Romans. They thought that they were better than anybody and everyone else. That's, by the way, why um, the word barbarian came about, was because if you didn't speak the Roman language, uh, you were a barbarian because any other language sounded like you're speaking, they would say barbar, and they just ended up calling you a barbarian. You're a barbarian if you don't, end up, if, if, if you don't speak Latin. I was going to say Greek. I would have been a barbarian. <laughs> Roman was uh, like it was a den of iniquity. It was incestuous. It was idol worship. It was one of the worst places you can think of in terms of like sin and debauchery to be a part of as a Christian. And Paul says, I'm excited to go there. I'm eager to go there. And the reason why he was eager to go there was not just because uh, he was so in love with Jesus, but because he knew what the gospel was going to do. He knew what the gospel could do. He knew that the story of Jesus, like we spoke about last week, was an anointed story to bring the worst of the worst to salvation. He knew that the gospel story was a story of light and no darkness would ever consume the light, but that the light would expel the darkness. Paul knew that. Paul knew that by going to Rome to proclaim Jesus meant that he was going to be proclaiming Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is, and that that message would change and rock people's worlds. And that's why Paul says what he says next. Not only is he obligated and eager, but he says, because of my personal experience, because of what I know the gospel is going to do, I am unashamed of the gospel. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. we read that and it sounds so great, but a lot of people, and I ask the question, well, why would he need to say that? Why would he have been ashamed? What would Paul have been ashamed by? Or, you know, how would Christians be ashamed by preaching the gospel? And I know Paul wasn't. He says he's not. 
But there are some reasons why some Christians might have been ashamed of going to go preach the gospel at Rome, in Rome. There's reasons why, and the, the, the reasons are very similar to why we would be ashamed to preach it nowadays. One of them was the fear of persecution. One of them was the fear of persecution. For Christians to preach the gospel in reality means that at some point persecution is going to come. And so sometimes we're ashamed of the gospel, of preaching the gospel, because we know what it's going to mean for us at the end of the day. Preaching the gospel in Rome was going to be dangerous. It wasn't going to be a walk in the park. Paul wasn't going to be rewarded for doing this by people. And the reason why it was going to be dangerous, like I said, was because at the core of the gospel message is Jesus is king, not Caesar. Jesus is Lord and Savior of all, not anybody else. It's a subversive message that denied the lordship of anyone and everything else. And at best, by preaching this, it meant that you'd be an outcast or you'd be imprisoned or at worst, you'd be tortured and executed. But Paul's obligated and he's eager to do this. He's unashamed. I think nowadays, the gospel is as much of a subversive message as it was then, except the Caesar of our day is culture itself. And the individual who believes that they're their own God, that, that we're our own saviors. There's this idea in culture that God has been killed, that we've rejected God and God doesn't exist. There's this whole idea of tolerance and inclusivity and political correctness. And because of what's happening around the world, Christians are being quieted and muffled. Think about the whole Israel Falau story. Because of that, many Christians are terrified to say anything about Scripture on any controversial topic. So many different things happening in culture for us that make the gospel message a, subs a subversive message. It's also dangerous nowadays because of that. Maybe not in the same way as it was for Paul, but most certainly you can maybe possibly lose your job for preaching the gospel. In some, in some instances, in some cases, maybe you could even be imprisoned there are definitely people losing their lives around the world for the sake of the gospel, not in this country, but definitely in others. But that's one of the reasons why we could be embarrassed because of the gospel message. It's going to result in persecution. Another reason why Paul may have been embarrassed, may have been embarrassed is because the message sounded absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, he is going to a Roman city, and he's going to preach about a Jewish man. The Israelite nation was under the rule and authority of the Roman government. They had been conquered. The, the Israelite nation was a conquered people. And here Paul is going to the Roman capital, and he's going to go and preach a message about a Jewish man from a nation that was subjugated by Rome. And Paul's going to proclaim that this Jewish man, who was a carpenter's son, fulfilled Old Testament Jewish scripture, but was executed by the Romans at the request of his own people, and then somehow was resurrected from the dead and is now Lord and Savior of all. That message would have sounded absolutely ridiculous to people. And that's why Paul says, we preach Jesus Christ crucified, a stumbling block to many and foolishness to those who count themselves wise. 
The Jews couldn't believe this story. So how were the Romans going to believe it? Among the sophisticated, intelligent people of the Greek culture, Paul was laughed at for his message. In Athens, he was brought before a court of philosophers, and he was asked and questioned about his faith. And when he spoke about Jesus being raised from the dead, the response of people was very disheartening if you were expecting them to drop down and fall at their knees. It says this in Acts chapter 17, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. And I think one of the reasons why we're ashamed of the gospel is because of the shame of embarrassment and being thought of as foolish and insane, of being mocked and scorned and being made to feel inferior. I think about my brothers and sisters at Varsity who are constantly mocked by lecturers and other students who think they know it all because intellectually they might be quite strong in some areas. I don't know many people who can endure being thought of as foolish. Children and teenagers want to fit in all the time, and so do some adults. When your beliefs are treated with contempt and people laugh at you, it's really hard to endure that. So we end up giving into the crowd, or we decide to keep our faith private, or at worst, we twist the gospel so that it becomes more palatable for people, so that I'm not mocked. Oh, no, 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 my faith is the Jesus faith, but it includes this and this, and this, no, no, you don't, no, you're not going to go to hell, don't worry, you, oh, no, believe whatever it is that you want. Paul wouldn't do that, he couldn't do that. And he says this, he says, the gospel has impacted my life so much, and I am unashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God unto salvation, because in it, the righteousness of Christ is revealed. The antidote to being uh, ashamed is to be confident about the person or the cause that you believe in. And Paul was absolutely confident in the gospel, and so he wasn't ashamed. He knew what it had done in his life. It's not just some excellent set of ideas. It had transformed him, and I think we move out of a place of being ashamed of the gospel when we are convinced of what Jesus has done in our lives. There is nothing you can do to take away from me the knowledge of what Jesus has done in my life. Not only do I bear the scars on my body of the day Jesus saved me, but I bear a transformed heart. And people that knew me before I knew Jesus will tell you that I'm totally different, and that is for the glory of God. There is nothing you can do to convince me that Jesus and the gospel is not powerful to transform people's lives. But I think sometimes we're ashamed to take the gospel because our Rome may be a person or a boss or a sphere of influence that we're in that we think is just impossible to reach and we've underestimated the power of the gospel. A guy by the name of, I don't know his actual name, but his surname is Mounce, writes this. He says, much religious discourse is little more than words and ideas about religious subjects. Not so the gospel. The gospel is God at work. He lives and breathes through the declaration of his redemptive love for people. To really hear the gospel is to experience the presence of God. Then he quotes the great evangelist Dwight L. Moody, D.L. Moody, who said this about the gospel, the gospel's like a lion. All the preacher has to do is open the door of the cage and get out the way. So he said about the gospel. We can at times be ashamed of the gospel because we've forgotten how powerful it is. 
We often think that the power needs to be in our presentation. How eloquent can I be? What programs can I put together? How can I twist this? How can I contextualize this? And I don't think it's wrong to contextualize, but I think if our focus just becomes, how do I best make this thing fit this culture, we sometimes get totally sidetracked and forget that just the story of Jesus itself is powerful and anointed. Paul says the gospel of Jesus is the power of God to transform people's lives because in it, the righteousness of Christ is revealed. So he's saying the reason why it's powerful is because the righteousness of God is revealed in it. And that's what he means by that. Paul knows that the problem we all have is sin and separation from God. Paul knows that God has an objective high standard that none of us can reach. The only way to get into heaven is to be saved by God and to attain his level of righteousness. And he says that's impossible to do. But that's why the gospel has power, because it reveals the righteousness of God. In other words, it reveals how to be righteous with God. And that's Jesus. The gospel is so powerful, it is so explosive, because it reveals the person of Jesus Christ. And you accept him by faith because of grace, and you're right with God. That's powerful. That's something not to be ashamed of. In other words, the gospel is intrinsically powerful because it reveals Jesus. You don't make the gospel powerful through eloquent words, persuasive words and clever thoughts and clever programs. It is powerful because it reveals Jesus. All we have to do is present the gospel in the opportunities that God gives us to do that. And we trust that it is a supernatural message with supernatural power and that will transform people's lives. And this is what I'm gonna say as I bring this to a close tonight. Whether Paul was facing persecution, he was compelled to preach the gospel. Whether Paul was facing death, which he faced over and over again, he was eager to preach the gospel. And the reason why he was eager and was compelled and responded to that was because Jesus was his Lord and he knew that the gospel in and of itself was powerful to redeem people, not him. Jesus had never disappointed him, had never let him down. Jesus had never abandoned him, no matter how sinful he was. And Paul says in Timothy, I am the chief of sinners. Jesus had never, ever let him down. And there was no ways Paul was gonna be unfaithful to his king now. And so Paul was compelled by the gospel, eager to preach the gospel and unashamed of the gospel. And I think we need to pray and ask God to do the same thing in our life. God, just remind us of, of, of how responsible we are for taking this message to people. And Holy Spirit, birth in me an eagerness to do this. And Lord, make me unashamed of this thing. This message that transformed my life and the message that will transform the lives of others. So I'm gonna pray for that. I'm gonna ask the team to come up. We're gonna go into time of worship. I'm gonna pray and ask that the Lord would do that in our lives. Maybe we can just stand together because I know Tammy's going to have to call us to stand. Let's, but let's, let's stand together. And I want to pray for us and I want to ask you to respond 